20 minutes a day, 365 days a year. This is the Pack a Day Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Pack a Day Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Herman. Joining me is the one and only Ben Fennel. We are going to be breaking down. Packers, Buccaneers, what went well in 2020. We'll discuss a little bit of the Senior Bowl, who Ben is going to be watching. So we've got a ton to cover, but before I jump in and we get to any of that, Ben, how the heck are you doing? I'm doing well. Exciting time, uh, kind of a blending of postseason football and uh, a lot of teams entering their offseason, looking ahead in next year's draft. It's exciting uh, Super Bowl ahead with the Bucks and the Chiefs and Senior Bowl week. A lot going on. Yeah, there certainly is. Um, I'm th- I was just thinking back, actually, as we're doing this right now, when we uh, did this earlier in the season, right before the season started, you did your Super Bowl predictions. I'm, if I remember correctly, I think you had Bucks Colts. I think you said two quarterbacks in two different spots, Tom Brady and Phillip Rivers. Uh, you got 50% right. I can't remember <laughs> who you picked to win, but still not too bad, all things considered. I don't know if I remember saying that, but it, it sounds pretty smart, so let's go with it. <laughs> Fair enough. I may, Maybe I'm thinking, I don't know, I, I'm 99.9% sure it was you. <laughs> We've got a lot to discuss with Tampa Green Bay, which we'll get to in a second. But as we're recording this, literally just minutes ago, uh, Sean Menenga was let go of his uh, special teams duties, as special teams coordinator. Um, no word yet on Mike Pettin. As you are listening to this, maybe something has changed. Um, although Rob Domovsky did report that uh, Mike Pettin actually doesn't have any time left on his contract. He did not renew last year or sign an extension at any point. So his contract is technically up. So if they want to keep him, they actually have to sign him to a new deal, which is somewhat interesting. But I'll start with Menenga, Ben. Any, any you know, surprise here? That it was obviously one of the, the worst special teams units statistically in about all phases over the course of the last two seasons. Um, yeah, you know, I think the special teams are kind of uneventful for the most part. I think they have a really good punter, a really good field goal kicker. The return game is really being phased out of the NFL, particularly the kickoff return. Punt returns are, you know, just don't muff it back there. I know we had some protection issues at times with the block punts and a couple returns allowed at times, but the collective impact of special teams, um, I don't think it's creating as many waves or, uh, um, true implications on the game on a week-to-week basis. I know it's that third phase, and we obviously are going to pay attention to it. It's important, um, but it's just, just excited for whoever's going to slip in here next. And I thought Menenga did a, I thought he did a decent job. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think for me, it was kind of those egregious errors that you mentioned. You know, the missed extra points. Part of that was, um, you know, due to, uh, you know, just long snapping. You had the the blocked punt. You had two punt returns for touchdowns. Uh, you know, you had numerous long, uh, you know, kick returns. And then on the flip side, Green Bay really struggled in returns, both in kick return and punt return. And no question, part of that is personnel. Um, Green Bay certainly hasn't seemed to to dedicate much emphasis on, uh, you know, and personnel when making roster moves other than obviously your, your normal kicker, punter, long snapper. But, um, you know, I think it, it was both somewhat coaching as well as just the players that they had. But I also agree with you hundred percent when it came down to brass tacks and who was winning what game. I don't know how much ultimately green Bay special teams played a part in that. Yeah. You know, I think if they get some more speed at the skill player position, they'll get a little bit more juice in the return game. I have some personnel issues with, you know, some of the young guys being put on some of those coverage units that I thought there could have been some more veteran presence as we had talked about earlier this season. But um, I think as they clean up the roster, Special teams should be uh, reflected, you know, off of that. 
Yeah, it, it still seems, and I've said this numerous times, it still seems crazy to me that you can have a 53-man active roster and a 16-man practice squad that of guys you can call up at any time, and you literally can't find one kick returner better than Malik Turner or um, or Malik Taylor, excuse me, or, uh, or Jamal Williams, who was returning kicks in the last game. It, it just seems crazy to me that you don't have a, like, you don't have a guy in a 69 man roster who has that ability to return kicks a little bit better. So certainly not all on the special teams coordinator. You know, it's also an interesting reflection on kind of just taking a step back and saying, you know, does this Packers team have enough speed? Do they have enough playmakers, you know, and particularly the ones that can just create for themselves with their ball in their hands. Um, and I think looking at the return duties and who has done those roles and the success of the return game has also been a bit of a reflection to the type of talent they have at the skill player position. So it might be something we could talk about later. Yeah, which is interesting, too, because, you know, go back going back and, and reading Ron Wolf's, you know, kind of book and, and what he like really looked at at wide receiver. Um, one of the things he constantly looked for was players who returned kicks or punts in college because he felt like if they had the natural receiving skills and then that return ability, it would equate to, you know, yards after the catch and things like that. And that was one of the key things he looked for. It certainly seems like to some extent Green Bay's gotten away with that. Now, if, you know, if you're getting guys like Devontae Adams and, and things like that, you know, Jordy Nelson. And who really cares if you're get you know, if they can return kicks or punts, but um, it is interesting that they've at least diverged from that a little bit. Yeah. I think it's an, a pretty interesting and fair reflection there. All right, let's go over Tampa Bay, green Bay. Of course, everyone's still disappointed from the Packers loss in this game. Let me just start with the simple, uh, which is not simple at all, but what went wrong in this game? You know, obviously it was a bunch of things. It seemed like things were compounding on both sides of the ball, but it seems like they got, you know, kind of beat up, you know, through the line of scrimmage, both sides of the line of scrimmage. And when you can't establish the run through the line of scrimmage and stop the run or put pressure on the opposing quarterback, I know Tom Brady presents his own unique challenges for the way he plays quarterback and trying to generate pressure on him. But it just seemed like at least offensively, um, just getting no push, no movement, no secure protection through the offensive line. And I think as they became more one-dimensional through being forced one-dimensional and then by our own choice of being one-dimensional later in the game, um, I think it's just too hard and not the style uh, that the Packers had used up until this point to be successful and to be a dangerous offense. Um, So I don't want to say it was a Jekyll and Hyde type of performance there, but they kind of just lost their identity, uh, you know, and what got them to this point. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. I actually talked about that on the video uh, version of the Packaday podcast this morning over on YouTube of how, you know, ultimately at some point, you know, we can talk about all the different mistakes and the, the you know, the long touchdown before halftime to Scotty Miller and and the dropped interception by Will Redmond. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a game that comes down to blocking and tackling to some extent. And I thought Green Bay lost the line of scrimmage on both sides of the field. Interestingly enough, especially in juxtaposition to the 49ers game from a season ago, I thought they did a pretty darn good job of stopping the run outside of the, the one big run by, by Leonard Fournette, the 20 yard touchdown run thought they did a really nice job stopping the run, but I uh, couldn't get pressure. I thought Tristan Wirfs and uh, that entire bucks offensive line did a really nice job in that regards. Um, Jensen, obviously Marpet. And then, you know, as you mentioned, Brady makes it all that more challenging as well. And then on the flip side, though, I, I thought Lindsley played a pretty good game. I, th- I thought outside of that, all four of the other players were consistently getting beat at the line of scrimmage, couldn't get the run game going, couldn't pass protect. And as you mentioned as well, part of that was the 48 pass attempts, which is uncharacteristic of them so far this season. I kind of felt like 
it was a, it was a coach or it was almost like a poker player who was on tilt. And like, as soon as they got behind and it was like, he lost a big hand and he just wanted to get it back as quickly as possible. And it was throw, 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 and trying to get the ball down the field and kind of got away from the identity, as you mentioned earlier. And, and because of that, all of that, you know, the jet motion and the sweeps and the play action, it went away. Um, and I think part of that was of course, cause they're losing, but at the same token, they, it certainly seemed like they got away from their game plan and identity. Well, let me ask you a question, Andy, here, as we're sitting here, I'm looking at the box score five point game as after you watch the tape and graded the players as you do, you know, uh, after every game, do you feel like the score was representative of how the game went? That's a really interesting question. And, I, and now I'm curious as to which way you're leaning. So uh, a couple ways that I look at this, when, when I first watched the game live, I felt like the team that was playing better was Tampa. And the reason that I say that is I felt like the, I always look at it in the, the realm of who has to work harder for their points. And I felt like Green Bay had to work really, really hard to kind of get the ball down the field. Rodgers had to step up, make some plays. Yeah, all the catches were contested. It, it felt harder for them. Now, Brady made some mistakes to get Green Bay back in that game. Um, a couple of those were forced. You know, one certainly was not. That should have been a big completion down the middle of the field on Ch- Chandon Sullivan that got tipped up to Alexander. Um, but I thought that, that overall – um, Brady had a little bit of an easier day in, in what he could have done against Kevin King and Shannon Sullivan. That was my initial reaction watching it live. When I rewatched everything and then graded everything, it, it felt to me like the teams were closer than I thought outside of that stretch, that 11 play stretch from uh, the 45 second mark in the second quarter up until uh, they scored the touchdown right after the Aaron Jones fumble in the third quarter where Green Bay had the opportunity to double up right before half and right after half getting the kick. And instead it was the exact opposite with the Scotty Miller touchdown and then the Cameron Bray touchdown following the Jones fumble. I, I thought that 14 point swing swung everything in the favor of Tampa. And I think if you look at the rest of the game, it was pretty darn close and and green Bay may have even been better outside of that 14 point stretch. Yeah. I think that's a really fair sentiment. You know, the way you described it there, as far as watching it live and then uh, back on the tape, you know, I just feel like there were so many moments of emphasis impact moments. And when we went and reflect on this game on Monday, you kept going back to the moments where it seemed like a on off switch. If they just made this play, you know, the play at the end of the half, the Scotty Miller, if they just kept it in front of him, held him to a field goal. If Devante just caught that ball in the end zone, yep. if Rogers like just ran it in, if he didn't get called for a penalty at the end, where it seemed like a big either or. But watching it back, it felt like there was way too many of those to the point that it all added up to a, you know, I felt the Bucks dominated in so many phases that even with, you know, the three interceptions from Tom Brady, which they dug themselves plenty of holes as well. Yep. Um, I felt it was even worse watching it back on tape and to see it be a, only a five point game. I just think the score doesn't necessarily reflect how poorly they played. And we think on Monday of all these individual moments of if only this, if only that. And it reminds me of the Mighty Ducks when Gordon Bombay is telling <laughs> telling young Charlie about when he hit the post. And if it was just a quarter inch the one way, he would have made it. And then Charlie's like, yeah, but if it was a quarter inch the other direction, you would have missed completely. And that's how I feel about Packers looking at their missed chances. But the Bucks also did so many things to keep the Packers in it to say, you know, if Brady doesn't throw two of the three picks, the Bucks might win by 15, 20 points. Yep. 
So, you know, it's an interesting way to look at the missed opportunities by the Packers and also the things the Bucks did to hurt themselves. And I just don't feel like the game was as close as far as what was happening, you know, down to down, whistle to whistle. So that, that kind of leads into my next question for you is that, did you feel like Green Bay lost this game or did Tampa Bay win this game? Meaning did, did Tampa Bay just outplay Green Bay and their scheme and their matchup and their players were better? Or did Green Bay with all of those mistakes, getting away from their identity, having the drop passes, the drop picks, everything like that, did they lose the game more than Tampa Bay won it? It was both. And that's why I just look, sit here and say, wow, they only lost by five points and it was both. They hurt themselves and the Bucks gave it to them pretty good. It's like, you know, I, I can make a strong case for both of those. So to sit here and say, how'd they only lose by five in those situations? I, you know, it's a way you could say, is that a good thing or a bad thing that they can play so poorly and still almost steal the game away? Um, you know, so it's a lot of different ways to kind of look at it um, and whatever you need as therapy. Think about it that way for whoever's listening right now, because, you know, it, it really does. You can be self-reflective and say it was all on us and look in the mirror and you could say, you know what? You got to give the other team credit. They had Tom Brady, Bruce Arians. They got it done. They stopped the run. They nailed Aaron Jones. They created turnovers. You know, so whatever you need to be therapeutic and, you know, uh, medicinal right now to get through this week um, is probably going to be different for everybody. But, you know, I give the Bucks a lot of credit and the fact that Tom Brady, you know, th- just to do what he's doing at his age and the style in which he's doing it and to see the contrasts and styles and that the Packers do so much quarterback friendly stuff for Aaron Rodgers. And Tampa Bay doesn't do any of that for Tom Brady. It's so much hero ball quarterbacking. And that's what Jameis had to play in in Tampa Bay. It is hard to do. And the fact Tom Brady can throw down the field so much, never hold the ball, never wait for coverage or breakdown, never extend the play or create anything improvisationally. Everything's within structure. It's insane. It really is insane. What Brady is doing, Philip Rivers is doing, Drew Brees is doing, all these veteran assassins that play from the pocket and don't hold the ball, I am just over the moon about. And this is also giving a little bit of peek into what I think about the quarterback position and what I thought about Aaron Rodgers always running around. And that just isn't the style of quarterbacking for me. There's a certain way and style I want my quarterbacks to play and what your job is A, B, and C should always come before the D, E, and F. And I felt like Rodgers at times was relying on those D, E, and Fs. I know we're getting a little on a tangent here, but just giving a, a, a credence and credit to Tom Brady and uh, for everything that he's done. No, I made a pact with myself because when I was younger and watching Michael Jordan, I cheered against Michael Jordan every single time because I just, you know, I wanted something different. I wanted somebody else to win. And in doing so, I never really fully appreciated the greatness that was Michael Jordan. And I promised myself that I would never do that again. Yet here I find myself <laughs> doing the same thing with Tom Brady. But Andy, and you, know, you know, in your defense with that stuff, it's easy to hate those guys too. Right. Absolutely. They were not likable. And if you happen to be a Knicks fan, a Pacers fan, a Rockets fan, whatever in that nineties, it was so easy to hate Michael Jordan as great as he was. And a lot of these great figures in sports, it comes with that kind of hot and cold, you know, vanilla chocolate view of them and (laughs) either love them or hate them. There's a very few in-betweens. 
No, I hear you. And so now I find myself in the same spot somewhat with Tom Brady, but certainly appreciate the hell out of what he's been able to accomplish in his career. And now, you know, Green Bay, of course, can live with the statistic that Tom Brady has as many NFC championship victories as Aaron Rodgers does. So uh, that can just, you know, sting even a little bit more. Uh, just going back to our, you know, that topic for a second, I, I agree with you completely. And I was really impressed with Tampa Bay's defense. And I know Green Bay got back in the game late, but I just thought their pass rush up front, their ability to stop the run, I didn't think Vita Vea was going to be, you know, effective coming back from injury or play that much. I thought he played a little bit, you know, part, but Jason Pierre Paul and, and Shaq Barrett, now, I knew those guys were good, but th- I mean, they played such fantastic football in that game. And then you got Devin White and Levante David and the speed at the mm-hmm. linebacker position. Their corners played physical and aggressive, which is exactly what you want in the playoffs. They played a ton of man to man defense, but, um, you know, Matt LaFleur's made a living on, on killing some of those man to man defenses this season, but Tampa was prepared for everything that LaFleur was going to throw at him. Some of those um, kind of clear out crossing plays, they had the safety come down and attack it, which is mm-hmm. exactly what happened on the Aaron. And Jones they finished problem. the game with two backup safeties. Exactly. So like they didn't have any adversity either. They had a right. drafted free agent, a right guard. They had two backup safeties. You know, they had to overcome stuff as well. No, I agree. And it's, you know, I, I was initially felt like Green Bay just kind of, you know, lost the game and blew it. But as I watched it again and again, I felt like Tampa definitely deserved a lot of credit, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, kind of quickly, did you feel like there was any flaw in Green Bay's roster or coaching or anything that, you know, really set them back and allowed them not to win this game? Or was everything constructed well, the coaching was good and it just wasn't their day? You know, I guess you could point to some after the fact. I don't know if I'm, you know, kind of uh, doing a bit of results-based analysis and saying, well, you know, they can probably upgrade here. Uh, that guy, they could probably upgrade here. But it's all reflective on the results of what happened. Um, you know, so you can point to the Chan and Sullivan's and, you know, the Alan Lazard didn't have a great game. And we could point to instances, but... Collectively, no, you know, this was a X's and O's type of scheme, type of scheme, not a Jimmy's and Joe's. And, you know, the Tampa Bay kind of made them one dimensional. I thought they played more intense. And um, when you make a team like this, that's an X's and O's scheme based team, one dimensional. You just see how hard it is then put, you know, all the emphasis on on one phase and just throw your way out of it. And that hasn't been the formula under LaFleur for two years. And there, there isn't many games or situations where they've had to throw away the game plan so early. Um, so, you know, I think this is all also a learning curve for Matt LaFleur. It's only yep. his second year. He's learning how to manage games and manage critical situations and when to be risky and when to be passive and conservative. I think it's a bit of a conflicting, you know, conversation because as Aaron Rodgers is entering the twilight, Matt LaFleur is just entering the scene. So while he's just starting and saying, you know what, these last two years are going to be so good for Matt LaFleur moving forward. The other conversation to some people is we're wasting Aaron Rodgers' final years. And, you know, I think we all have to kind of understand they're at different points in their careers and at different trajectories. And as Matt LaFleur is figuring it out, Aaron Rodgers wants it done right now. Um, And he doesn't have a whole lot of time left. So, you know, There's a lot of ways to look at it, Andy, but, you know, I thought the roster was good enough to win. I thought this was a Super Bowl caliber team. They just had to show up and to to always harp on the phrase any given Sunday. It's hokey, but it just means you have to show up and perform every Sunday. 
It doesn't mean some nerd is going to, you know, beat up the bully on, on a Sunday, but if you don't do your job, you don't execute, you don't, you know, um, play clean sound assignment, you know, technically sound football, anybody can beat you. Uh, whether it's the, you know, good teams like Tampa Bay's or, you know, bottom of the league team. So um, I thought this team was more than capable to win it all. They just didn't get it done on Sunday. I'm right there with you. You know, I do think, you know, the corners, as you mentioned, Kevin King, Shannon Sullivan, you know, maybe got exposed a little bit, maybe not being able to play, you know, as much man to man, maybe Kevin King's injury played a part, but I think that's an area Green Bay may have to kind of upgrade or at least look at upgrading moving forward. I I thought the loss of David Bakhtiari in this game certainly hurt more, um, especially when you're going to throw the ball 48 times, that (laughs) definitely didn't help anything. And I just think they needed a little bit more from the Smiths and and Rashawn Gary. And again, we can talk about all day of the, the complications of Brady and how quickly he gets rid of the football, but um, invested a lot of time, effort, energy, and resources into that, uh, you know, that specific position. And I just didn't think that, you know, Gary and, and Z and Preston um, ultimately had much impact on that game. And I think they, they needed a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's fair. But like you had mentioned, the, the Tom Brady never holding the ball <laughs> makes for a very tough matchup. Petten sent some blitzes on the opening drive. The first two third downs sent pressure. In fact, two of them, I think, were free. But him getting the ball out so quickly, they blitzed and played man coverage behind it. What every Packers fan wants from Mike Petten, yep. Tom Brady beat us. You know, And you have to kind of tip your hat off and say, you know, they, they have good players too. They have a bunch of millionaires on their side. They got it done. You know, you can point to Shannon Sullivan and say, you got to cover here, but it's no defense for perfect throws. And when he makes plays like that and finds the right read and he, Tom Brady seemingly finds the vulnerability and coverages every play. It's nauseating because he's so, so uh, cerebral at the quarterback position, knowing where to go with the football. Yeah. You know, they just didn't execute. And, you know, I would call the same defenses and say, you got to, show up this down. You got to play and you got to, you got to execute. Yeah. It sucks that the other play, other teams have good players too. And that certainly was part of the problem on, uh, on Sunday. Um, last thing kind of going back to this game, uh, Scotty Miller touchdown is obviously one of the egregious ones. Um, at the time when it first happened, um, I thought they were more kind of protecting the boundaries and playing more of like a cover three and, and, you know, doing something, but they were in a straight man-to-man defense. And it obviously Matt LaFleur mentioned after the game was not the right call in that situation. They weren't really protecting the boundaries for a quick five to 10 yard pickup to get them an easier field goal range. And they certainly were not, you know, uh, protecting the, the deep part of the field seemed like an egregious call seemed like even worse coverage on the play by Kevin King, but what was your read on that? Yeah, it was tough to assess uh, the way the the Bucks to the left of the formation, they kind of had reduced splits. So it forced the coverage off them a little bit, uh, you know, before the snap. So it was really tough to initially tell if they were in straight man to man or in a, a traditional cover three as Kevin King had to play off. And then as he's off and Scotty Miller's running at him, essentially runs right past him. But it did have man to man principles. Once you look at it with a couple defenders in the middle of the field, almost in no man's land. But you have to reflect on the earlier play, the previous play, uh, which I think was was it fourth and 13 or third and 13. And they hit the little quick screen. Uh, right through the middle of the defense, which is a really popular third and long, fourth and long type of play. So I'm not sure if that was a lingering effect on what coverage call for the next play and whether they should have gone to a true, you know, Hail Mary defense. But I got news for you, Andy. If they go to a Hail Mary defense and Tom Brady hits that check down for a free 20 yards and they kick a field goal, you're going to see 
almost equally, you know, gripes on Twitter and from fans about saying, why are you playing so soft? You just gave him a free three yards. Every coverage has vulnerabilities. This one, the vulnerability was a, a corner on an island. Cover yeah, the yeah. guy, cover the guy, you know? So, you know, it's not a sound call. But if, if Kevin King does his job, it's there's no problem. So, you know, you can blame the scheme and the call and you can blame the player for his execution. Um, every coverage has vulnerabilities. I don't think fans are going to be pleased either way based on the results. So, you know, it was unfortunate that it happened. But, um, yeah, I don't really know what else to make of it. Yeah, I, I agree in the fact that the player in this situation was probably more to blame. I don't, I don't like the the call in that situation, but it, as you mentioned, if Kevin King just covers Scotty Miller one-on-one, which there are some flaws in Kevin King's game, changing direction at time is definitely an issue, you know, allowing some stuff to the inside. Tackling has not been great, but his ability to cover um, one-on-one on the outside on some of those deep routes, he's got great speed. He's got great length. That's been one of the things, and we're not talking about Mike Evans or Chris Godwin. We're talking about Scotty Miller. If he just stays with Scotty Miller and stays deep on that situation and plays one-on-one, uh, Kevin King is going to win that. And instead Miller blows right by him. And, and to me, that's, that's more on the player than it is on the call. Yeah. And sometimes I wish Kevin King would play the receiver more than always trying to play the ball. And I know we, we talk about ball skills down the field, a corner's ability to track and locate the ball down the field. We see a lot of defensive backs not finding the ball and creating unnecessary contact or pass interference. But I think Kevin King gets into finding the ball mode a little too fast at times. And we've seen in his young career, his you know inconsistency in judging the ball in the air as well. And I thought that Mike Evans touchdown earlier where he kind of mistimed his jump has happened several times throughout his career. And I almost wish he would find the receiver first, use that big 6-2 frame and be more of a nuisance at the catch point than trying to be a ball hawk. Um, I know I'm really splitting hairs with technique and style of corner, oh, but um, you know, it also came down to that Scotty Miller play where I felt like he looked at Scotty and then tried to find the ball and once he starts finding the ball, he loses that speed and ability to keep relationship with the receiver he's covering. And next thing you know, the ball's over his head. Um, so I think he has some ability. Obviously, his his scheme, his style, his positional fit, his technique has uh, obviously been very inconsistent. It really has. It'll be interesting to see what Green Bay decides with him moving forward as an uh, unrestricted free agent. So I'll, I'll kind of lump this question into one, Ben. What went well in 2020? What things can Green Bay build off of and what things still need to be addressed in this offseason? Well, um, are you talking roster wise, scheme wise, everything? wise? I'll let you take it in any direction that you want to go in. Well, I think the scheme on offense has been a breath of fresh air to see. Aaron Rodgers trusts the scheme, play more within rhythm. You see how clean he's been on a week-to-week basis, how healthy he can be. You could still see he's a pocket-passing assassin as he's on his way to his uh, MVP trophy here. I love what they've done on offense. Now I want to see them just add more dangerous weapons into the scheme, Um, adding more 4-3 presence, more guys that can do more damage with the ball in their hands because LaFleur is going to scheme them opportunities. Now, what can you do with that opportunity? So as we've seen guys like Alan Lazard is a really good football player, really physical player, good blocker, usually catches everything. There's some room for some more athleticism and some more explosiveness at the receiver position. 
And, you know, that's looking right at Equinemia, St. Brown, Lazard, MVS. Obviously, we know he has speed, but has been inconsistent. I love the scheme. So I think just adding more players that fit into the scheme, pass catching running backs, you're going to need a true wide tight end of the future to replace Mercedes Lewis. Um, but judging the last offseason into this year, you know, I just want to see more offensive tackle depth, which losing Bulaga, all they really did in the calendar year was sign Rick Wagner. Nothing really in the draft or anything. And you know that depth has been tested before. It's going to be tested again. Never let offensive tackle injuries ruin your offense. You have to be prepared for tackle depth. So just adding more receiver depth, tackle depth, more competition uh, to the roster, I think uh, is going to be the name of the game for the next couple of months. I've already been on record that I, I, I'm predicting already that the Packers first pick in the draft is going to be an offensive tackle. Um, that's uh, a couple different things that I'm hedging my bets on here. One green Bay tends to only draft, you know, premium position type players with their first pick, which offensive tackle is definitely that Two, There's definitely, it seems like at least early that that's going to be a, a kind of a prime position where some offensive tackles could, could easily go off the board, whether they move up a little bit down a little bit, or even stay where they're at. Um, and uh, definitely if you look at the, long-term depth of the position, Billy Turner, Rick Wagner. I don't, I don't know if Rick Wagner is going to be back. He'll be potentially an interesting cap casualty. You could make the argument for Billy Turner, but based on what he did this year and playing all over, I'd expect him to be back, but he's still not a long-term play. And Oh, by the way, your franchise left tackle just tore his ACL as well and may not even be ready for the start of the season. So it just seems to me that that is a prime position that even if you get somebody that takes a little bit of time to develop um, and is a, a high-end player, uh, that would make a ton of sense for an early draft choice. And like I said, I'm going to hedge my bets and say that that's going to be their first pick in this draft. We'll see what happens, but um <laughs> And if they went to, if they went tackle tackle next year rounds one and rounds two, I would have no problem with that. Agreed, I 100% agree. And then to, to your point with the the four three speed receiver, you know, you just look at Kansas City and what they're able to do. And I know they're such a unique animal, but um, you know, Tyree Kill, McCole Hardman, and then you, you know, Travis Kelsey, what he can do after the catch. They've got guys where you get the ball in their hands and it's a nightmare, right? Green Bay has talented players that can run the system that Matt LaFleur wants, but so much of it is predicated on, uh, you know, Matt LaFleur designing up the play and Aaron Rodgers at times throwing players open. And of course, Devante is a special, special player, arguably the best receiver in the league, but nobody is necessarily like a yards after the catch demon. And Mar you know, Marquez Valdez scaling has the straight line speed, but I'm talking about like the video game controller Madden 22, you know, can cut on a dime, can go anywhere you want, can be that guy player can be just that guy that gets the ball in his hands and every team is afraid that even if he catches a three to five yard pass it could go 85 at any given time if you could add that piece to the puzzle I think that it would be such a, a major major piece for Green Bay to have yeah that's something obviously I've been echoing on my Twitter account for a couple of years <laughs> now trying to find somebody in that gadget role which when I say gadget it's a combination of slot receiver, running back, returner. Long story short, these are the guys that excel with the ball in their hands. And as we're seeing an elite scheme, add elite talent, and that's a dangerous offense. So I believe this is an elite scheme, you know, just off the heels of a San Francisco and of a Kansas City. But Kansas City has elite talent at an incredible number of positions, obviously quarterback, but two, three receivers and Travis Kelsey, and they're dangerous in a number of different ways. So I want to see LaFleur add more dangerous weapons to his elite scheme. And I think this draft, there are plenty of these 
gadgety slot receiver yards after catch nightmares. And I'm just trying to reflect on my head and think back. I mean, how many times has somebody caught a slant and made the safety miss and taken it 40, 50 yards yeah. uh, outside of Devante, maybe making somebody miss, which he does through elusiveness. He doesn't do make a whole lot of guys miss with strength and physicality. I just see all these guys in college football run these RPOs and bubble screens. They put the ball in their hands, they tuck it in their armpit and they start fighting and they're going to fight safeties off and they have a physical presence to them. And, you know, a lot of this, I'm kind of picturing Kadarius Tony in my head and what he's done uh, down there at the university of Florida and out the senior bowl week and a player like that. And there's a lot of them in this draft. I would just love to see in the slot for green Bay. Would be fun. You know, the players I'm picturing as you're talking about these physical receivers who can take a five yard path, like the Debo Samuels, the AJ Browns, those are kind of what I'm picturing in my head. But yeah. I, I hate to I hate to say Randall Cobb's of the world, but yeah. yes, that's the style of player we're talking about. And you know, the, the Randall Cobb later with the Packers was completely different to early Randall Cobb. And even I had to go back and rewatch some of his early stuff. He was incredible incredible with the ball in his hands. He ran dynamic routes, caught everything and was a nightmare with the ball in his hands. And there hasn't been anybody like that in the Packers offense since him. Devontae included, Aaron Jones included, whoever else included. Randall Cobb was really, really special for his first four or five years in Green Bay. Hey, he certainly was. And that goes back to getting a guy who could do some returning in college and being able to do some yards after the catch stuff. So we'll see if maybe Green Bay gets back to that a little bit. Um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask is anytime a team gets this close, NFC championship game, they lose in that game. The question is always, you know, could the general manager have done just a little bit more? Now it's worth noting, you know, Brian Gutekunst didn't have a ton of salary cap space to work with, you know, going into this season. Uh, and of course he was picking what, you know, 30th overall, I forget what it was, 30th, 29th, or 30th overall in every round, but you end up with a, a free agent class of Rick Wagner, who ended up definitely paying some dividends, especially at the price that they got him for. Um, Devin Funches, who he could not have predicted, would have opted out of the season. Christian Kirksey definitely started slow, had some injury issues again. I thought he finished better towards the end of the year. And then a draft class that, you know, everyone knows the names at this point, but was mostly irrelevant come um, come NFC championship time. You had Kamal Martin play a handful of snaps. Uh, AJ Dillon played a handful of snaps. DeGuara, you can't really fault him for because he, what, tore his ACL or had some sort of season-ending injury. But did Brian Gutekunst do enough, whether it be the trade deadline, free agency draft, to kind of get this team over the top? How would you evaluate his 2020 in hindsight? I think he did things, but did he get enough results and production out of those things? And that's pretty clearly no. But my caveat being, if I had a choice of saying, you know, making a few roster changes or replaying the game with the exact same roster last Sunday against the Bucks, I'd say meet me next Sunday with the same group. Yeah. And that's how I look back on this Packers team. Not so much a, you know, a woeful, oh, if they only drafted him or if they only signed him. Like I said a couple of minutes ago, this was a Super Bowl caliber team. And I really feel like these two teams show up 100 times on Sundays. They're probably each winning 50. So, you know, it's a you got to show up and execute, get, you know, do what you have to do. The players on the field, in the locker room, suiting up are good enough. 
everything was good enough. You just got to perform and execute. I would love to see Bakhtiari in there. Obviously I'd love to see, you know, the injured guys um, on the field and on healthy and working, working. A, well, yeah, absolutely. Working with a full deck. Yeah. I'd love to beat a fully healthy, you know, Tampa Bay team as well. I don't want to see anybody, any of their stars injured as well. I want them fully healthy and you punch them in the mouth and you beat them fully healthy. Um, it's easy to look at the draft class is an alarmingly lack of production to a draft class. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever seen a team get so few snaps and contributions from an entire draft class, but this team went 13 and three in the NFC championship game. You know, they were right there. And I can't then say, you know, the final day of the season, well, actually they weren't good enough. They were good enough. And you just had to show up and do it. So we can point to the individual ones. We can look at who was on the board in the second round, the fourth round, the seventh round, undrafted free agents, prime free agency who was there instead of Rick Wagner. Obviously some teams found gems across the league. But this team was good enough, Andy. So, you know, we can play the you know, revisionist game, but they had to just show up. And I think uh, looking at these guys moving forward, it's going to be really interesting to see who they feel like is a cornerstone piece and who really needs to be upgraded. And one of the things I get frustrated with as well is there's this idea that, you know, well, the Packers will never go all in or, you know, you know do anything like that to try to um, win it now. 2019 is about as close to an all-in offseason as you can possibly get. I know they couldn't do it in 2020, but when you spend a boat ton of money on Preston Smith, Zadarius Smith, Adrian Amos, and Billy Turner all in one offseason, that is about as all-in as it gets in the NFL. By the way, all within like a 24-hour time period as well. I know that they you know didn't do some of the things in 2020, but that was an all-in move in 2019 to give Aaron Rodgers that shot in the arm and improve the defense and help out his offensive line and those sort of things. So uh, I, I disagree with the notion that Green Bay doesn't take that all in sort of approach because I, I really feel like they kind of did that in 2019 in free agency. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a really good observation that, you know, giving that influx of talent and in two short years, they've really changed the tone and the culture on the defensive side of the ball with those Smiths coming in and Amos and Savage and Gary and all new linebacking core or getting Kirksey this offseason. I think the tone, the attitude, the physicality of the defense collectively has really reflected some of those changes. So not only has it, have they been making these moves, getting the results off those moves, obviously 2019 was unreal production getting from the Smith brothers and Amos and some of those guys. But uh, in the 2020, you know, you're getting consistent, solid veteran play. It may not be as flashy and wow as it was the year before, um, but I love the tone and the style of the defense. I do too. I thought that was a major off season for Brian Gutekunst. All right, before we, you know, kind of start wrapping up here, I have to ask you about the the Whitewater Wonder, uh, Quinn Minard's uh, center from UW Whitewater, who's definitely gotten some buzz for his looks, but more importantly, his play uh, at the Senior Bowl and practices so far. What can you tell us about the Whitewater Wonder? Well, he's been out there uh, showing off his abs and a six pack there <laughs> with the shirt pulled up. Um, but he's an interesting player. He's 6'3", 320, really good size. Just to uh, kind of do the evaluation backwards, I had no problem writing down Richie Incognito as a comparison. So this guy is a power scheme, people moving guard. This guy is nasty. He's a road grader. He's a glass eating type. He pulls often, very heavy on contact, looks to finish opponents all over the place. I got news for you guys. He's dirty and I love it. He's out there biting ankles in the bottom of the pile. I'm sure doing all sorts of dirty stuff. Hey, that's what, that's what you got to do as a guard, you know, in football and in the trenches here. He's a tone setter. Um, he's probably not going to be for every scheme. 
probably not a zone guard, but probably somebody with a little bit more power gap scheme, uh, you know, maybe like the Baltimore Ravens, New England Patriots type of uh, fit there. But this guy's fun. He's nasty. 2019, he's an AP first team All-American. He's a team captain. This is a guy the NFL has been very aware of. Uh, unfortunately, a season got cut last fall. And I'm so glad that he got the nod down there uh, to, to Mobile coming from Wisconsin Whitewater, which, you know, doesn't pump out tons of NFL prospects. But uh, this was a guy that has been on radars for a couple of years. And if you ever get a chance to watch his tape, he destroys people in the run game. He's a lot of fun to watch. Find that big number 77. I think he wears a little bit of a uh, neck roll back brace thing. So he just has that kind of Richie incognito, no nonsense looking to uh, crush heads out there. Gotta love it. So are we, are we looking at <laughs> what day two, day three, uh, day one? What are we looking at for, for he's probably a, a day three pick outside of him doing something crazy down here uh, at the senior bowl. Um, there's some good guards ahead of him. Deontay Brown, Alabama, Trey Smith, Wyatt Davis, Ohio state, Elijah Vera Tucker, USC is going to slide into guard from left tackle. There's some next guys like Ben Cleveland from Georgia, but then he's probably going to be one of the early day three picks. And just to prepare fans out there, this 2021 NFL draft is going to be as unpredictable as we've ever had. There's just going to be no consensus uh, from teams, from fans, from media. So there could be some surprise picks. There could be some serious reaches and there could be some serious busts coming as well because of that. So there may be a team that is all in on a kid like this and yes, ends up taking him in the second round. Would I be surprised? Yes, but I'm kind of mentally preparing myself for some of those uh, kind of shock selections and just to kind of, you know, temper myself down to say, be ready for some some eye popping selections. Yeah, we saw a little bit of it last year. I agree with you. I think it might even be more eye popping this year and, and how some of that goes down and how teams evaluate these players. I said last year that I thought Green Bay was in great hands in that situation because they have a bunch of scouts running the front office and it's football guys and who are going to trust the tape and and be a little bit be, you know better set up for that. I'm not sure that worked out exactly to perfection in the last draft, although we've got a few years still to figure that out and see how things turn out. But I do still think Green Bay's in good hands with you know kind of their front office and how they have things set up and how they evaluate talent. Yeah, they have a great scouting staff. They sh- they'll, they'll, they'll always be going to be okay. They have a really good foundation in there. Absolutely. So any other players that you're kind of keeping a close eye on here in Senior Bowl week and specifically in the Senior Bowl? Well, it's all my gadgety guys. So you know, I, I want Amari Rogers on the Packers, who was, uh, you know, second in yards after catch just behind Devontae Smith. We were talking about Kadarius Toney. That guy shreds grass with every step on the field. He's as sudden dynamic as anybody in college football and somebody's starting to turn heads the last two days, Demetric Felton at UCLA. Yeah. He, everybody's looking at him as this pass catching running back. He was a four-star receiver coming into UCLA. This is a receiver that got moved to the backfield role and he looks like a receiver in all these routes. So he's starting to turn some heads and everybody's saying, who's this running back? This is actually a, a receiver and a running back package, but this is exactly what we're talking about. And there's a lot of speed down there at the senior bowl. Marquez Stevenson from Houston has a four, three, three laser time. D Eskridge at Western Michigan has a four, three, three laser time. There is four, three, three receivers all over the field out there. They're small, they're gadgety. You want to just throw bombs to them and just hand the ball to them because they're just so electric with the ball in their hands. Um, so that, there's a lot of speed out there. And I'd love to see one of these guys in green and gold uh, next fall. 
I can tangibly feel the Packer listener listening on the other end of this right now being like, can't wait to see Green Bay pass on all of them again. Yeah, yeah. I can, I, I, just, can... I see the Packer fan just crossing these guys off their board. Yes, like, exactly. oh, I guess we're not taking him, him or him. I can tangibly feel it <laughs> as we're talking about it, Ben. Just the, the grinding of teeth in, in cars as people are listening to this of like, oh, these are more people that won't be on the Packers. I, I can feel it, but uh, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case again. We are going to see what happens though. Before we get out of here, prediction on the Super Bowl. I believe, as I mentioned earlier, you had Tampa Bay correctly in the Super Bowl before. So let's get your prediction for the Super Bowl winner now. Do you remember who I picked? With that I don't. I wish I did. I don't remember. Because if it was Tampa, I'll just double down and go with them. But I'd be very hard pressed to ever pick against Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid and that high scoring Chiefs offense. I think the Bucks are good. I just don't know if they have enough juice to uh, really light up the scoreboard like they're going to need to against this Chiefs team. So I'll say Kansas City Chiefs. 45-35. I'm really interested to watch this after the, the Tampa Green Bay game because now with Eric Fisher out at left tackle, it doesn't sound like Mitchell Schwartz is going to play at right tackle. They've already had, what, Assemble go out with injuries. Um, well, De- you know, Devernay Tardif or whatever his name is. I always mess it up. But um, Duvernay Tardif, I think he... Uh, he uh, opted out of the season. Like mm-hmm. they are just, they have nobody left on their offensive line. It is absolutely crazy. So I'm really intrigued at how they're going to do against uh, Sue and, and, um, and Pierre Paul and, and Barrett and the whole crew uh, and, and Vita Vea with not having any of these offensive linemen available. I'm, I'm really interested in that. And, you know, Andy, I don't always like to be negative, but I love pointing to all the little pockets of adversity that other teams have to face as well. Yep. I think sometimes we're so in tune to our problems and the issues we're going through with injuries and roster and talent. I got news for you. Every team's going through this. And whether it's the Bucks finishing the game with two backup safeties and, you know, they had to play a undrafted free agent right guard the entire game the last two weeks or the Chiefs with serious offensive line injuries. Teams are going through all this, you know, across the league. Every team has to kind of handle the adversity of injuries and shuffling guys around and young players stepping up in big moments. So, you know, as much as we're frustrated that the Packers have gone through some of this and Weedy weren't working with a, a full deck, neither is any other team. So it's just an interesting perspective. Yeah, the Chiefs are down to, it looks like, I'm just going off of our lads, which is right like 20% of the time, but uh, Mike Remmers, Nick Allegretti, Austin Reeder, Stefan Wisniewski, and Andrew Wiley, and then their backups are Daniel Kilgore, Yusir Durant, and Martinez Rankin. That's what they're down to on the offensive line in Kansas City. Not exactly a who's who of offensive linemen left. So we just saw Tampa Bay beat up an offensive line in Green Bay that had played well all season long. Can Kansas City run? Can Kansas City pass? Obviously, their offense is so ridiculously good, it seems like no no matter what, but as we just talked about, the trenches uh, can change games in a hurry. I still like Kansas City as well, but that's going to be a fun matchup. And just for fans to know what I'm about to do right when we get off here, I want to look at Indomitian Sue and JPP when they were signed to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, how old they were and how much money they got because they are playing out of their minds, Andy. They are playing outstanding football. They never come off the field. They rarely get hurt. They're excellent run defenders. They're absolute terrors against the, uh, the pass as well, just getting after the quarterback. They're tough players. They're reliable players. And I don't really remember Sue going over there from, I think he was at the Rams before that. Um, or I remember JPP going over there a few years earlier, but the way they're playing at their ages, I think they're 33 and 35 years old. Just very, very impressive. 
Yeah, I I was so impressed when I went back and watched the game and just, uh, you know, when you've got four guys up front that can hold up against the run and get pressure on the quarterback and you don't need anything more than four. I mean, we always go back to that Giants team against the Patriots and how they were able to beat that undefeated Patriots team with the four up front. But like, you know, when you can get four guys like that, it's just absolutely unbelievable. Um, And JPP, though, like uh, I was really quick, JPP, he didn't just, you know, get. Billy Turner, he whooped Billy Turner. Oh, he, okay. I thought he shredded him, you know, for the better part of four quarters out there in the run and the pass game. I thought that was really the kind of first string of unraveling with the, uh, the offense. So in Dominican Sioux on a one year, $8 million deal with Tampa, just an absolute steal at age Sheesh. 33. Uh, Jason Pierre Paul does not want to pull up for oh, two years, 25 million. So about 12.5 uh, was his last deal that he got with Tampa Bay. So um, not seeing the ages. Here we go. So age 31 last year when they signed him initially to that two year deal in Tampa for those veteran deals are always a cat and mouse on. Do they have enough left or are we about to sign them, you know, one year too late kind of thing. And I mean, Tampa Bay hedged their bets too. one year for Sue, two years for JPP. If you miss out and they, they bust, I mean, what total, uh, what was, uh, Jason Pierpaul 22 or 25 million. So, I mean, 30 million for, um, two guys over, you know, what two years for Paul in one year, it's not like they, you know, put the bank in those guys and invested a ton of money. They got, they were able to get out of it if they wanted to. And, and it obviously paid, paid huge dividends for them. Yeah, absolutely. Really good front. All right, Ben, thank you so much as always. This is absolutely incredible. Love doing it every single time. Enjoy the Senior Bowl. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Uh, for those of you following along, Ben, has your article been put out this week yet for The Athletic? You know, I didn't do one at the uh, the end of the NFC Championship gotcha. game last year, and I sat here starting to write it, and then I just scrapped it thinking I wasn't sure how interested Packers fans would be to reflect back and considering the conversation uh, around the league, Senior Bowl, Aaron Rodgers' future, it seemed like they turned the proverbial page. So I kind of just uh, went on with the rest of my life. No, I think that makes, I think that's a good decision <laughs> overall. Uh, anyway. I did watch the tape back, but I, obviously I was watching it and just was consumed by uh, Aaron Rodgers' contract and where he's going to be talk. But um, which just to uh, give a quick elevator speech, he's under contract and about to win the MVP. This guy's not going anywhere. There's, <laughs> I could, I there's a higher that. percentage chance for Jordan Love to be the starting quarterback of the Montreal Alouettes next year than for Aaron Rodgers to leave Green Bay. I agree with you 100%. I thought it was much ado about nothing the entire time. Uh, but that is neither here nor there. That's why we didn't spend a ton of time talking about it. Thankfully, Mark Murphy came out and said uh, that we're not idiots. He's going to be here next year. Oh, he Rogers, did come out and say something? Okay. Yeah, he, yeah, he said a couple of days ago, he, he basically went on a chat and said, we're not idiots. He's going to be our quarterback next year. Roger saying that is the equivalent of saying, hey, you know what, tomorrow, Andy, let's get together. But... You know, the world could blow up tomorrow. So, you know, let's touch base in the morning just in case. Yeah. It's like a like you're raising the most catastrophic scenario out there as a well, you never know. Right. I'm, I'm dying. The, and then you the ask the sun might not rise tomorrow. But yes, <laughs> I am under contract. But, you know, there's always that possibility. That's like what it was to me of Aaron Rodgers mentioning that. 
I agree. I agree. And <laughs> great stuff as always. For those listening, make sure to check out Ben at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. You can follow me on Twitter at Andy Herman NFL. That's going to do it for us today. Make sure to check out the video version of the Packaday podcast over on YouTube, a new episode 365 days a year. Of course, we got you here on the audio version as well, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Enjoy the Senior Bowl. Enjoy the Super Bowl. But until next time, and as always, go Pack Go.